Great God, our great and mighty God, we thank you and we praise you for the great gifts that you've given us, especially the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and magnify you, Father, for that. I ask, Father, that you would take away anything of me, Father, that we come through this message and let this entire message be coming from you. I pray that you would encourage your people. I pray that you would correct your people if necessary, that you would bring them, Father, the gift of faith through the hearing of your word. O Lord, may all the words of man fall to the ground, but only the word of God remain. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the the phrase, uh, does not compute. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It was made popular back in the 1960s, actually 1965, in a show, a sci-fi show called Lost in Space. Has anybody heard of that one? Lost in Space was kind of like the Swiss family Robinson in space. It was a story about a family named the Robinsons who were in a spaceship and they flew out into space to explore strange new worlds. They got knocked off course and the rest of the series has to do with them finding their way back home. Well, on this show, they had a variety of characters. One of the characters that was very endearing was, called, was a robot that they had and it was aptly named... Robot. And Robot would be the, the, was designed in order to help the family and in order to obey the orders that the family would give them. And he, uh, he was kind of built like a big barrel with a, with a fishing ball on top of his head. And he had two scoopy arms out in the fo- that he would move up and down whenever there was danger. And the thing about this robot, he was very logical and he would only do the orders that was given as long as it went through his little algorithm. Whatever was going on and it processed properly, the robot would do. And when he was given an order that he did not understand, that it did not kind of process properly, he would stop and say, it does not compute. And he wouldn't move anymore. He would stop there until an order was given that he did understand, and then he would continue moving on. The funny thing about the show is usually he was given an order by that by the nefarious Dr. Smith. And whenever Dr. Smith wanted to do, get into some trouble or try to overtake the ship and give the robot an order, the robot would stop cold and say it does not compute and would stop. Now, we're not robots. The human family is not a robot. However, we are designed and wired in such a way where we like things to make sense. And when they don't and things don't compute, we get a little angsty. We want things to make sense. We want things to one thing follow the other. Even those who are rabidly anarchists, the ones that are the staunch nihilists who says, oh, I don't need the rules, I can live my own way, and I love chaos, they still have a reason for the, they try to, they still try to force a reason into why they do what they do. They still need it to compute, and they could, they should, because they're created, whether they like it or not, in the image of God. And our God is a God of order. He created things by his word to behave in a certain way. He did not create the leaf first and then the trunk and then the root and then the fruit. No, we expect seed, root, trunk, branch, leaf, fruit. We like things in order. And when they don't become in order in our lives, we reach out trying to find order. And we do either one of two things. We either stop for a minute and, and, and 
think it through and, and pray and ask God for some reasons for what's going on and struggle through it until the, the, the idea comes up and things start making sense. We wait it out. Or we throw up our hands like Nietzsche and say, God is dead. There is no rules. There is no meaning. It's all absurd. And we give up and try to cram our own meaning and start bringing our own corrupt ideas into things. We need things to compute. We need things to make sense. Now, we're going to be walking through the book of Habakkuk, and I pronounce it Habakkuk. Some people might say Habakkuk or Habakkuk, but I say Habakkuk, just because it's easier for me to go. And we're not going to, we're going to do a flyover of the book. We're going to go and rest in certain portions of the book and find out that Habakkuk, as a prophet of God, was experiencing a spiritual, uh, a spiritual crisis. You see, the prophet Habakkuk lived in Judah, and he had experienced, if you've ever heard of King Josiah, he was one of the best kings that, uh, that Judah had, and he brought reforms. The word of the God had been, had, had been lost, and, he, and they dug and found the word of God, read it to the people. Great revival came into Judah. The, the covenant was renewed. The people trashed away their idols, and they bring the word of God and the true worship of God back into Judah, and it was a prosperous time. But that only lasted until the reign of Judah, I'm sorry, the reign of Josiah ended because when he died, because all of the kings of Israel ended up dying, all of the kings of Judah ended up dying. They were flawed. They were with sin. There was something going on that still caused them to, to go the way of everyone else. His sons took over and they ended up unraveling all of the things that King Josiah did. Bible says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They took and built back up the idols that they had torn down before. They forgot the word of God that God had given them. They disobeyed the covenant just like their sister Israel to the north. You see, the kingdom of Israel had been a united kingdom under Solomon. When Solomon died, the kingdom divided. Ten tribes went to the north, calling themselves the kingdom of Israel, and the two tribes in the south, calling themselves the kingdom of Judah. Now, there was, in the kingdom of uh, Israel up at the north, all of their kings were worthless. Out of 20 kings, not a one was any good, and God, through the Assyrians, about about 122 years before Habakkuk, had sent all those people off into captivity, decimated the people, that were there. The only people that represented God at that point was small, the two little tribes of Judah down in the south, where the, uh, the capital was Jerusalem, where the temple of God remained. Well, true to form, the people of Israel decided to go back to their old ways, and the place became filled with more and more junk idolatry. And Habakkuk is walking through, praying, wondering what is going on when the representatives of the people of God are turning out to be no better than the pagans outside of that, of that kingdom. He saw injustices, the poor, the, the downtrodden, the orphans, the widows were being abused by those who were up in the elite statuses. Their own people, their own people, the Jews, were oppressing their own people the poor Jews. Habakkuk was wondering what is going on here, and he would preach, and he ministered through that time, trying to, praying and trying to get the people to repent, but nothing was going on. It was at a place of 
crisis for him because he came up with the questions, what is going on when the people of God are not being the people of God? These things did not compute. Now, as we walk through the book of Habakkuk, his oracle, we'll find it's divided up into two movements, two, cha- two basic sections. The first chapter, or the, uh, the first section, is Habakkuk's, the, perpe- the perplexity that Habakkuk is going through, the confusion that he's going through. He lays out his arguments from chapters 1 to 2a. And from chapter 2b to chapter 3, we see a change in perspective. So we begin with the perplexity that Habakkuk is going through. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, which should be on page, I believe, 997 in your pew Bibles. We begin the oracle of Habakkuk. Now, don't be afraid. I'm not going to read the whole book, even though it would take about 10 minutes to read through it. So I encourage you tonight to pick up the book and read it. It would be, it would be, uh, it would be very beneficial to you. But the key verse is verse 2 in chapter 1. How long, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Note that he's crying out to the Lord, praying to God. How long is the question? How long am I going to be having to deal with the things going on around me? Note what he says in verse two. In verse three, why do you make me to see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction, violence are before me. Strife, contentions arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Why? For the wicked, verse four, surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. This was Habakkuk's first complaint. He had a problem here, but the problem wasn't so much with what the people were doing. You see, he was laying out, this is a, a, a lamenting prophet talking to his father. It is, it is the child of God communicating with his father the issues that he's going through. How is he going to survive this? What is going on here? I'm praying God, I'm crying out, and nothing is changing. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like your prayers are going up to the ceiling, pinging off the edges and not going anywhere? You look at your surroundings and nothing's really all that different. In fact, sometimes it would seem that the more you pray, the worse things get. How does a child of God react that way? He's very, very honest, bringing these cares before, before his Father in heaven. And note, there is no lightning bolt that came down and turned him into dust for asking such questions. You can come to your father and bring your hardest complaints. And Habakkuk did this. But the complaint wasn't the people. The complaint had to do with God's seeming inaction. The problem is, look look at how he says this. How long shall I cry out and you will not hear as if God were deaf? And you will not save as if God forgot how to save You make me to see iniquity. You're permitting all this stuff to happen around me while you idly look by. As if God is just pitching up his feet and just saying, eh, he's a passive God. He won't wound things up and just let them go on their merry way. He begins with a huge question mark. This book begins with a giant question mark. 
The cool thing about this book, if you might notice about the prophets, is that, is that usually a prophets are sent to a people. They're, they're sent to a king, you know, the, the oracle to the king of Nineveh, a, a, prophet to the, a, a prophecy for the people of Israel. But this book is not so. This book is directed, is a conversation, a dialogue, as it were, between God's man and God himself. He points out the evil in Judah and God's chosen nation, which is full of wickedness, and God doesn't seem to act or care. He's articulating a lot of the problems we have in our own time about the problem of evil, about the character of God. If God is good and God is powerful, then where did this evil come from? I mean, if he's good, he can't stand evil, so why does he put up with it? Unless, of course, he's not all-powerful. Well, then if he's not all-powerful, then he's a weak God. He's not really worth worshiping at all. At least that's what the world would like us to think. And sometimes we might fall into that doubtfulness when we, see, when we don't th- see things changing. We, we look at our, at our news feed and we find things a wreck outside of our walls. We hear about people that don't even know what gender they are anymore. They've forgotten what they are. Uh, a culture that's filled with death and decide that death is the good things. The bad guys are winning, but the good guys are losing. Things that are evil get applauded, gippy skippy, and things that are good tend to be suppressed. Can you feel that palpable ache of emptiness and silence that seems to run through Habakkuk's heart here? Often it's hard to see the hand of God in a fallen world, and and we get quickly perplexed because things just don't compute. It doesn't make sense. But will God answer? Well, we'll find out as we move on to the next section that he indeed does. He responds. Look at our next section here, the Lord's answer. His response from chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. We find out that uh, the key verse there is verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, I want you to picture this, if you would. You have the opportunity to ask the God of the universe anything, and the God of the universe is going to give you an answer. And here the the prophet of God has his ear perked up, and this is what God says. He says, look among the nations and see. Oh, you want me to look? Okay, okay. I'm getting ready, God. You're going to tell me something. You want me to look? N- not here. You want me to look among the nations? Yeah, look among the nations and see. Wonder. I'm wondering. And be astounded. I'm going to be astounded. I'm getting ready. Come on. This is, it's almost like you see God building up the tension. For I am doing a work. A work? A work. In your day. In whose day? Your day. God's going to answer this prayer in the days of Habakkuk. He's going to see this prayer answered. God says, I'm going to do such a thing that you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Holy moly. Can you imagine receiving an answer from God? I've got something so prepped for you that it's going to blow your mind. And Habakkuk is sitting there. I can see him revved up, ready, just getting in position with this big grin on his face. Okay, what is it? 
And then God answers. What does he say? He says, behold, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, to march through the breadth of the earth, in verse 6, to seize dwellings, not their own. They're a dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignities comes forth from themselves. And I could just see Habakkuk sitting there with a frozen grin on his face and saying, what? Wait a minute. You're, you're, oh, the answer that you're giving me, God, is that you're sending a bitter and hasty nation. Look how God descri- describes them. Their horses are swifter than leopards. These guys have swift animals. They're f- swifter than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly. And they come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. I'm already experiencing things being devoured. They all come for violence. I'm already seeing violence around me. They gather captives like the sand. They scoff at kings. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth. That is, they build ramparts in order to siege and take over nation. This is a warring nation. They sweep like a wind and they go on. They are guilty men, verse 11, whose own might is their God. Their own idol is their own strength. God is going to use a bitter and hasty, unrighteous, idolatrous, wicked nation to bring punishment on his people who are being wicked, idolatrous, hasty, and idolatrous and adulterous as well. It is interesting that God will correct his people. It is not an easy thing to be called a child of God. It is a weighty responsibility. These people, the people of Judah were the only representatives left in, the, left in the land of the worship of Yahweh. And these people had traded that in. To be a follower of Christ is not a light thing. To be a follower of the true and living God is not a light or frivolous thing. To whom much is given, much more is required. First Peter chapter 3 tells us, And if you call upon him as father, if you call upon him as father, who judges every man impartially, walk in fear during the time of your exile. Judgment begins in the house of God. Here we are as the people of God, representing God, and we have to, according to Scripture, we have a grave responsibility. Sometimes I wonder how seriously some of the people who call themselves believers and some of the people who call themselves a church take that grave responsibility. Do they look at you and see a reflection of the world? Do they look at, our, at a church and see a reflection of the way the world goes? Or they, do they see us following the tropes of the world? Or do they see us influencing the world, even if it takes us being canceled by the world? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God? And profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, says Hebrews 10.29, and outraged the spirit of grace. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. 
Judah itself had become a reflection, not of God, but of those very bitter and hasty Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, would be the rod of their punishment, a crooked rod of punishment with thorns. Habakkuk complained that the wicked surrounded the righteous, and now God is going to surround the wicked Judah with a nation that doubled down on wickedness. The thunder of that punishment is something that would make your brains explode. You would not believe it even if you heard. Sometimes God provides answers to his children that often just raises more questions. It makes our eyebrows go up even higher on our head. It teaches us that God is sovereign. His ways are unscrutable because God doesn't back off from these things. He doesn't really try to give you all the intricate secrets. He tells you what he's going to do. He tells you what your responsibilities are before him. He is sovereign and almighty. He runs things as he sees fit. The world doesn't like the idea of being ruled by a God who is sovereign. That's one of the biggest pushbacks in a lot of believing churches where God is good as long as he allows me to freely choose that I let him be good. And I let him free, I, I give him the freedom to do what he wants. No, I'm sorry, but God is God and we are not. And this is what he's telling his people. I am God. And I will use them as a rod if I see fit. And yet, he still calls us to come to him. These things are heavy because these things don't seem to compute. And he says to us, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. He's willing to listen. And now we go from the complaint that Habakkuk had, God's response, and we move on to uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, as we walk through uh, chapter 1, we walk on to Habakkuk's rejoinder. That is, now Habakkuk is talking back. So we have the rhythm of Habakkuk and then God, and now Habakkuk is answering to what, what you just heard. The, the key verse there is verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to look and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the treacherous, the traitor, and are silent when the wicked swallows up those more righteous than he. Isn't it seem, wait a minute, this is the same problem that I just complained about God, except now it's on steroids. I mean, we were bad in Judah, yeah, but really? You're going to let these people, this treacherous, idolatrous, idolatrous people come over here and trash us? Now, notice here from, uh, that, that Habakkuk had good systematic theology. He knew his God. Look at what he says in verse 12 about God. One, he points out that God is covenantal. He calls him Lord, Yahweh. Are you not from everlasting? God is eternal, O Lord. So he has God as being the covenant God. He has God being the eternal God. Oh, my holy one. He knows that his God, who is eternal and everlasting, is also holy. He says, also, the Lord, you have ordained them for judgment. He, he, he bows to the fact that God is sovereign. You are a rock. He knows that God is stable. And you have established them for reproof. And he also says, you, because of these things, God, because you are holy, and my systematic theology tells me that you are all these things, and he's accurate, God is all these things, 
This is where the disconnect is, uh, God. If you are holy, how can you allow and use unholy things as, some, as a means to be correcting your people? That does not compute. You said you were doing something that I would not believe, would say Habakkuk, and you're 100% right. I don't get it. Judah's bad, yeah, but these guys are worse. You're going to punish the bad guys by allowing other bad guys to keep mercilessly killing them forever? He, he even works his way in verse 14 saying, as far as I see these things, you're, we're almost nothing different than animals, than fish. Look at verse 14. It says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook, and he's talking about the Babylonians, and he drags them out with his neck, and he gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. So the bad guys come and do bad things, and they're having a great time with it against your people, and you're permitting it. Therefore, he sacrifices to the net. We're no different than fish getting caught up in a net, and the the guys that are bringing us in, not only do they abuse the fish and chop them up into pieces and have a good time doing it, but then they bow their knee to the bloody net that they used in the first place. It's another picture of idolatry because what their strength and their honor is from the Babylonians, their strength and their honor comes from themselves. They have their own truth. And as a result, they bow down to themselves like good idol worshipers would. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly mercilessly killing nations forever? Verse 17. By verse 17, I can almost see Habakkuk as being exhausted. He says, God, you're going to allow this to happen. I don't understand it. This evil people, it seems to me like you're taking gasoline, throwing it on fire in order to put it out. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. I don't get this. And as far as I can see, God, they'll just end up trolling us forever that God's people were taken over by God's enemies. And you're going to let that happen. His hands get thrown up. But look at chapter 2, verse 1a. And here we see something a little bit different. You see, in my weakness, my personal weakness, when things get that bad, my temptation is to say, I'm done. I don't know what else to do. I want to crawl under a table and forget about it all. Because it's hard to answer some of these questions. But God gives a gift of, to his people of faith. And I see a bit, of in, a bit of integrity here where he says, I will take my stand. My inclination is to want to stop. He says, I'm going to keep working. Habakkuk says, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take my stand on my watch post. The watch post is basically was a, was a tower or the top of the ramparts of the, of the city in which the guy who would look over at the dangers of the enemy and sound the alarm would stand. And he would look out for the marching of the enemy coming his way, and he would cry out when danger, danger was happening. That was the job of the prophet. But what, is, what he's doing here, he's not going to station himself up on there to look for the enemy. He says, I'm going back to my post. I'm not giving up, God, but I'm doing something different. I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he, God, will say to me and how I will answer concerning my complaint. 
He's determined to wait, to wait it out. And he's determined to be taught. God, he says, look, because of what I know of the systematic theology, there's more than this. And I know, God, that there's something that I'm missing here. So I'm prepping myself, positioning myself to be taught. And I will wait to see what he will answer me and how I will answer concerning my complaint. I'm going to be alert and be ready to receive, and I'm willing to be taught. Are you willing to be taught? When things are going rough and things are hurting and your body's falling apart, when your world is falling apart, when the nation is falling apart, when you wonder why my kid is sick, why does my spouse have cancer, why did the doctor give me that news, why is it that I got tossed out on my ear for proclaiming my faith and you let that happen? Am I willing to be taught what God has for me? And he, God does answer, and this is the second movement, the second section, from chapter 2b, two verse 2b up to chapter 3. We're going to see a change in perspective. Chapter 2 is the heart of the answer of God. It's right in the middle of the book, 1, 2, and 3, and it is set up in such a way where the answers to the question that was laid out in chapter 1 and all of that dialogue and all that struggle and fight is going to be answered here in chapter 2. And it's not a complicated one. It's complex, but it's not complicated. The difference is is that it's easy to understand even though there's depth to it. It says... Uh, In chapter 2, it says, And the Lord answered me. So God answered him. Write the vision. What vision? My vision. Make it plain on tablets, so so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, and it hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, for surely it will come, and it will not delay. So God is saying, here's the message that I have for you. Here's the answer. Write it down. Make it easy for people as they're walking by to look at it and get it right away. Make it plain. Don't make it complicated. This, isn't, this is the answer that I'm going to give it to you. The answer that you're waiting for is coming at an appointed time. Wait for it. Just as an aside, when the kids, uh, when the kids were younger, we would go out on a trip uh, on, on on, on road trips, and, and when we, I, they can confirm this, whenever we would drive just before we hit the, the, the county line or from one state to the other where you'd see that sign, we'd get right close to it and we'd see it coming and we'd all say, okay, wait for it, wait for it, and we'd just, just before we'd head, we'd go, and we're in Indiana. We'd build up the attention just before they'd cross. God's saying, wait for it. There's a time stamp here. It's coming, and it's not going to delay. And if it seems like it's delaying, don't give up. It has an appointed time. I have a time stamp for that. It is my time stamp, and it's going to happen at just the right time. You're going to see it, kids. God is not slow concerning his promise, as some consider slowness, but he's patient towards you, not willing that any of you should perish but come to repentance. He's patient because he has a timeline of gathering his people, of protecting his people, of making his glory shown at just the right time. 
Not a minute sooner, not a minute later. Wait for it. And what is that message? This is, if if chapter 2 is the center of the book, this is the center of the center of the book. And here is that message. In verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up within him. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk is waiting and watching. We're waiting for the Father to answer. And here, God is teaching something to Habakkuk that Habakkuk may or may not have gotten confused. Now, stay with me for a minute. You remember back in chapter 1, he made the complaint about Judah and about the wicked surrounding the righteous, yes? And how he wanted that to be taken care of. And God said, yes, I'm going to take care of it by taking the Babylonians and dumping it on Judah and punishing them for their sins. And here, on the second part of it, Habakkuk's like, whoa, 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 slow down. You're going from bad to worse. You're going to make... Uh, these people and allow these people to overtake those that are more righteous than they? Well, wait a minute. I just thought you told me that these people were filled with wickedness. Well, now there seems to be a comparative righteousness here. He says, these guys you consider to be wicked, the people of Judah, and now you look at the Babylonians and now you consider Judah being, what, a little more righteous than them? What's your standard, child? God says, no, there is a standard that you're not looking at here. The wicked, both the wicked Chaldeans and the wicked who are the wicked in Judah are both going to get punished. It says, in verse 4, I'm sorry, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. There is arrogance within both of those camps. The representatives of the, the wicked in the, in the midst of the people of God and the wicked in the midst of the pagan world are of the category of the faithless wicked ones. And the idea of having, being puffed up within him, the idea of having a soul that is filled with such hubris that says, I don't need God, I don't want God. These guys make up their own God and these guys repeal and replace God. That takes a lot of gumption to do such a thing. It is an all-encompassing statement. So who then are the wicked? It's any who seek to replace God with an idol of some sort, the one who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, the ones who are faithless, the ones who seek... You see, God takes his glory very seriously. He takes his name very seriously. And it could be a wooden God that you've carved out of wood, or it could be your own image that you like looking at in the mirror. It could be your own pride. It could be your own family. It could be your own business. It could be your nation. It could be your patriotism. It could be anything that raises up to even an inching level of devotion to God that that is an idol and that is considered wickedness because God will not be competed with. He is a jealous God. Look at how God evaluates these wicked people. In chapter 2 from verse 5, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as the grave or sheol. Like death, he never has enough, for he gathers for himself all nations and collects people on his own. And then he gives five woes, five punishments 
beginning from chapter 2, verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, 15, and 18, and 19. He, he lays out the punishments that he will give to the Chaldeans and thus to all those who are apart from God. The big message here is that the first lesson here is that there is no difference. We are all sinners. Everyone is a sinner, despite of your pedigree. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have fallen out of the way. All have been made worthless. All their throats are like open graves, and out of their mouths is the poison of asps. There is no difference. No, not even one. And God is impartial when it comes to that. He will punish them. The, in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, the extortioners, they will result in, in getting nothing. Shall not these take up their taunt against them with scoffing and wriggles and say to him, Woe to him who heaps up what's not his own. For how long, how they extort, the loads him with pledges. Will they not the debtors suddenly arise? And those who awake will make you tremble. They will result in nothing. Verse 9, all these oppressors will gain nothing. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who sets up his nest on high, as in getting security because of all the things that he has. Because the Chaldeans would, would actually build up their, uh, their fortresses on high places, thinking that nobody can reach them in order to take them down. But they forget that there's one higher than they are. And he would bring them down. Verse 12, their slavery and their cruelty will come to nothing. It says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and that nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. I want you to take that verse and hold it in your back pocket just for a moment. Because the woes continue, verse 15, woe who makes his neighbor to drink and to pour out wrath to make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Those who are degraders themselves will be made to be degraded and shamed. And ultimately, 20 and, uh, verse 18 and 19, what profit is an idol? Right back to idolatry. When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in its own creation. When he makes speechless idols, woe to him, verse 19, who, takes, who says to a wooden idol thing, awake, and to a silent one, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Idolaters will end up ultimately condemned with nothing. This is telling us that the punishments that they will receive, that the wicked will receive, will be just based on their, on their sin. All of us are sinners, and that's not unique to Babylon. His laws, all the nations that reject God and his law as nations themselves will end up as Neo-Babylons in destruction. This holds truth for any church that calls Christ their king. It holds true for, for any place or any person who abandons God's law in any nation who decides that they want to replace God with something like their own patriotism. 
For it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, the answer of how the wicked will be judged is based on that little verse that I had you put in your back pocket a minute ago. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, verse 14, as the waters cover the sea. God is not unknown. God and his glory is revealed from the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Everyone knows, even the atheist, that God exists. But they choose to suppress that truth. But the glory here is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. And it did. And it is covering the earth even now. You see, when Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father. And he rules and reigns here and now. This is not the devil's world. This is God's world, I'm sorry to say, to them, but not to God. For I rejoice in the fact that this is my Father's world. And the Lord is in his holy temple. Verse 20, let all the earth keep silent before him. Because our God reigns, it's hope for those who believe, but dread for the wicked. Because our God reigns, we know that we will receive justice and we will receive our salvation, our hope. But for the wicked, they know that it is established in stone that they will receive their just punishment. God will reign. The wicked will be punished. That's God's perspective. If it doesn't compute for us because of that, it computes because God is sovereign. It computes because God has arranged these things and uses means, even the evil, to do what he wishes to be done, to complete his plan. The other part of this is that the righteous shall live by his faith. You see, the wicked is puffed up within him, but the last part of that verse, in verse 4, the center of the center says, but the righteous will live by faith. Those were seven words that are repeated about three different times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14 I'm sorry, 117 in Galatians chapter 3 and in, uh, also in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 39. The just shall live or the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous will live because we need true righteousness. It's not niceness and it's not religious practices that we need to get to God but it's true righteousness that we need pure and holy righteousness that we need to receive from God in Romans 117 it says that the gospel is revealed the righteousness of God 
For the gospel is reveals the righteousness of God that comes by faith from start to finish, from beginning to end, from faith to faith, just as it is written, what? The righteous will live by faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. Faith in him that empowers us to live. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will endure by their faith. Hebrews 10.38 tells us, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what he has promised. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall what? Shall live by faith. But if my righteous one shall live by faith, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is enduring, persevering faith that God grants to us. And he's given us righteousness as a gift. The righteousness that we have is not something that we ginned up on ourselves, but it's something God has freely given us as a gift that we receive by the hand of faith. And it is only by faith and not by any works that you might do. As Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall what? Live by faith. Those seven words transformed a Catholic monk back in 1511 as he was walking in Rome and seeing the debauchery of Rome. This man had to walk up what was called the Scala Sancta, the holy steps. And on each one of those steps, he was taught that if he said a Hail Mary and an Our Father on each one of those steps, he would take off a thousand years out of the punishment that they would receive in purgatory. So he would, on his knees, crawl up each one of those steps and pray that, believing that he would receive what was called an indulgence so that he would take time off of these people who were having a need of some extra righteousness that the saints had. Well, this monk had struggled with his own demons inside of him. He said, I can't be righteous. I know I'm a sinner. How can I be saved? If I am evil and you created this me this way, it doesn't compute. And this monk would crawl up each and every step with that burden on his back until finally he got that little sheet of paper that said that it was an indulgenza. So now these people in purgatory, you've got a little bit more righteousness you can get in. And it still didn't give him peace. But this monk's crafty abbot, that is his boss, had sent him to study scripture. And one of the books that he studied was the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, we just read, it says, but the righteousness that comes from God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And as that popped into his head, he crushed that indulgence, crumpled it up and cast it aside because he realized that it was not something that he had to do with his bloodied knees up the stairs. It was a gift from God based on a cross. The blood came from the Savior, not from his knees, not from his hands. It came from Jesus. Therefore, the righteousness was given to him, and he grasped it. Finally, he said, it was like the light was shown inside of me, and I believed, and it was like I was reborn. That man was Martin Luther. And we're sitting here today 
because of what God did to that guy. Those seven words revolutionized that man's life. Those seven words would revolutionize Habakkuk's life. Those seven words will revolutionize your life. The righteous shall live by faith, but that righteousness only comes from Jesus Christ. And if you don't think you have that righteousness, the only time you have to use your knees is to bow to him and ask him for it. And he'll grant it to you. And we'll close with the last part of this is now Habakkuk's prayer, his prayer of perseverance. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. It's a Shigianoth is a song of passionate praise. It's a poem of passion. So when you, if you ever want to read this, read this with gusto, because he was praying it with gusto. It was a song that he was piping out from the top of his lungs. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you, and that's the key verse. Uh, the key verse actually is. Uh, Later on down there, in, uh, towards the end, in verse 17, we'll read that as a closer. But he begins with, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, I do fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, I've heard the report of you. I see the vision. Lord, I'm here. You've given me the answer that the wicked will be punished, the I see that the Babylonians are on their way here. I see the smoke and it makes me tremble because it will be devastating. I get that. But I do get that you're in control of this, God. And I tremble. I've heard of what you've done before. And he works his way down from chapter, from uh, verse 3 to 15, recounting the works of God as he delivered the people of God in the book of Exodus. And look at how he describes him amazingly. He begins, God came from Timon, from the highest place. The Holy One from Mount Paran, which was near Mount Sinai. His splendor covered the heavens and his earth was filled with praise. Selah. Selah means wait, think, pause. The, the picture here that he's giving us is that the glory of God is like the sunrise coming over the horizon. Slowly, the rays peak up and overtake the sky. The brightness was like the light, verse 4. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. And the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. The God of power was coming. And he came with great glory. And when he came into Egypt with the pestilence and with the darkness and with the frogs and with the flies and all of his powers were revealed there, the place shook and trembled. I saw in the text of Cushan an affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Verse 8 says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on the horses of the chariots of your salvation? Remember, in the beginning, Habakkuk began with, Oh God, why are you idle and you hear but will not save? That big question mark he began with. 
He believed and forgot that God could save. But now, in chapter 3, in his prayer, in his shigiath, now this is a great big exclamation point. Now we see not only can God save, but he says, when you wrote, he has saved on your chariots of salvation. You stripped the sheep from your bow, calling on many arrows, not just one. There's a picture of God here as warrior. His God is a powerful God, and he sees his God as a powerful God coming in power, coming to conquer. Our God is on the throne right now in power and conquering. Little by little, soul by soul, person by person, with you being the arrow tip as you bring the gospel to people. You went out, verse 13, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Stop and think. You know that word for salvation in Hebrew is yasha? Okay? It is a root word which means to save. From there was derived a name. Yasha, Yeshua, Yehoshua. In English, Jesus. Jesus is in the center of this. The chariot of our salvation is Yeshua. Of our Yasha is Jesus. And it was the, for the salvation, or the Yasha, of your anointed. And what's the word for anointed? Christos, Meshiach. Yeshua, Meshiach. Jesus Christ. In the book of Habakkuk, Jesus shines forth as the anointed, as the God of our salvation, The reason God is going to overtake the Chaldeans and leave even a remnant of his people. Because eventually, yeah, Judah got knocked out of the land. But there was a remnant. From that remnant, the seed of Messiah would continue until he would be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, in Judah, the very place that got shaken by the Babylonians. So out of that wreckage came the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ, right there. I hear, verse 16, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. If you see that kind of devastation, which the prophet did, it would cause him to tremble. Just as much as I would see when Jesus was crucified on the cross, broken and beaten should cause us to tremble. Yet, hold that word, yet, I will quietly wait for the day of rest or for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Yet, I will quietly wait for God to do his work. He will bring justice. And this is the key verse, verse 17. Though the fig tree, these are words of faith, folks. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the foes, and there be no herd in the stalls. 
even if things are falling apart. These were all pictures of covenant blessing. He says, if, even if those things don't happen, even if things look like they're falling apart, even if this nation thinks that they are going to overtake God's laws, the next word is yet. Yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And who is salvation again? Yeshua, Jesus. I will take joy in the God of my salvation who is Christ. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's feet. He makes me tread in high places. This is a declaration of Habakkuk's dependence on God. His trust in God because the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk's perspective has now been switched to God's perspective. He sees the amazing work of God and he sees that coming and he rejoices. The child of God can rejoice in his troubles, though for now, for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These have come that the tested genuineness of your faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom do you have not seen, you loved. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of great glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Now it computes. Because the righteous shall live by faith. Amen.